Hello and welcome to another episode of Parsha Lab. I am Imu Shalev. I'm David Foreman. And this week's Parsha is Ki Tisa. Okay, so Rabbi Foreman, I really want to talk to you about the Chet HaEgel, the sin of the golden calf. And the reason I want to do that is because I'm a big fan of treating Torah like a guidebook, trying to find the moral and relevant lessons to my everyday life. And Chet HaEgel is such a huge and epic story. But the problem is, I just don't relate to it. Um, I kind of treat it like, you know, when you watch horror films, you want to scream at the screen and you're like, don't go in there. Don't go in there. He's in there. He's going to murder you. But then they do. And it's as much as you try and scream in vain, they and go in. like, and... no, you avert your eyes. Exactly. And imagine year after year, you have to watch the same it's horror awful. film. And then not only that, we're told that we're supposed to learn some lesson from that. Like, <laughs> ostensibly, the lesson, you know, I don't would learn in kindergarten is don't go in there. Exactly. And it's, you know what? It's not like I have a lot of friends who are, you know, they didn't read Parsha this week, and they're going to worship some Agels. You know, like, it's not a very relatable sin to avoid. So I have a hard time. Um, and I kind of wanted to study with you this sin, the sin of the golden calf, together. What do you think? I'm game. I'm you into, into it? it? Go ahead. Great. So let's start with uh, chapter 32, verse 1. Vayar ha'am ki minahar. The nation saw that Moshe had delayed in coming down from the mountain for some reason. Vayikahel ha'am al aharon. And they gathered upon Aaron. So Moses is missing. So they gathered to Aaron. And finish the, finish the verse for me. Don't read it, but what would you expect it would say next? Uh, so you'd be thinking they'd want to coronate Aaron. It's time for the vice president to step up and take the mantle of leadership and invoke the 25th Amendment. Moses is gone. Exactly. Aaron, put your hand on these two tablets and uh, swear to faithfully execute uh, the duties of president. But that's not what happens, right? The rest of the verse is, Aaron, please go up and make for us a God that is going to go before us. Why? Because Moses, the man, who has taken us out of Egypt, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So by foreman, what questions pop out at you after reading this verse? So yeah, for me, it's it's the contrast between two words that sort of stick out. Uh, make us a God, because this Moses, the man, it's, it's this contrast between the divine being that they hope the calf will be for them versus the mortality of this man, Moses. And they seem to be uh, suggesting that if Moses has failed, if he has died in this story, the reason for that failure is his mortality. We need somebody that can't die. We need some sort of divine being. And we're going to make one since we can't find it. A divine being to make a divine connection with a God that would otherwise destroy anyone that uh, comes into contact with him. Okay, so so to me, to me as well, it seems like, first of all, and just to debunk a common misnomer right off the bat, it doesn't seem like the people build the golden calf because they're denying God. They seem like they're building the golden calf as a replacement for Moshe. And somehow they're going to do that by building an Elohim, which uh, back then, you know, as uh, polytheists or, or perhaps as seeing a head god with sub-gods, they're replacing Moshe with a sub-god. And the question is why they do that. And I think, Rabbi Foreman, you're, you're reading Kizem Moshe Ha'ish as an acknowledgement of Moshe's mortality, maybe perhaps saying Moshe wasn't strong enough of a leader. We need a god instead of a mortal. I'm not sure I read the verse that way. I, I could be convinced. I wonder if maybe perhaps 
the fact that they chose to replace Moshe with a god means that they thought that Moshe was a god, right? If they lost one god, they need to replace him with another god. And the reason I choose to read it that way is because it says, Kizem Moshe ha'ish asher he'elanu mitzrayim. They seem to imply that Moshe is the one who took the people up out of Egypt when we know that's something that God did. Um, and so I wonder to some extent if they are denying that God is the one who took them out of Egypt and, and saying that it's Moshe who did so, and they need another God to replace the, the deity. So Moshe. under that reading, how would you read the qualification of Moshe in the people's claims? Kizem Moshe Ha'ish. Why are they arguing that Moses was a man in this context? It's a great question. I, I ultimately will have to come to something uh, along the lines of what it is that you're saying. But I might argue that, you know, maybe Moshe was a demigod, right? He was a man who had godliness to him. And they I guess they are replacing him with a god. You know, just to just kind of uh, throw some gasoline on that fire uh, to uh, use a probably bad metaphor for the calf that came out of a fire. Throwing, th- throwing <laughs> things <laughs> in throwing the fire. Throwing things in the fire. Um, if you actually go back to... Uh, the first time that Aaron comes on the scene, because remember, this really is a Moses and Aaron story, right? Moses is gone. The people gather upon Aaron and they want a new leader. Think back to the very first time you have that interaction between Moses and Aaron, when Moses was the leader and Aaron comes in as vice president. Oh, wow. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Where does mm-hmm. Elohim Where does Elohim show up there? Emu, take us to the... Take us to the money over here. I believe what happens is when Moses is talking to God at the burning bush and Moshe expresses the fact that he is hesitant to go and speak to Pharaoh, um, God tells Moshe that he is going to be an Elohim. He tells Moshe that he's going to be kind of like a demigod and that Aaron will be his navi, that Aaron will be his prophet. Yep, Aaron's going to be his speaker right? And you were going to be like an Elohim. So fascinatingly, it wasn't the people who made up that notion that Moses could have almost a godlike status. God himself uses that language. And again, you have to keep in mind that the word Elohim doesn't always mean what we think it means, right? We think of Elohim as a synonym for God, based upon really like the first verse of the Bible, Breshit bar Elohim at as the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. But it may be more accurate to use the word Elohim as a sort of generic word for a godly style being. Again, this goes back to something which I talked about a little bit in the Exodus You Almost Passed Over, a book I, I wrote about the, the Exodus, where I argued that Elohim by Foreman, you wrote, wrote a, book? a book. You can buy it on Amazon or at Aleph Beta. Um, but uh, the book argues uh, in, in, that if you look at the names of God, the word Elohim actually has a meaning. It can mean either judges or it can mean power. And when the people would worship these demigods, or they would worship these other gods, they were really worshiping these other powers. And it's true. There are these powers in the world. The sun and the moon and the stars are powerful forces. They're much more powerful than human beings, right? So the moon controls the tides. The sun controls all life on earth. And when the Bible, for example, says, Lo you shall not worship other gods, that's not like this crazy oxymoron that I thought you said there's only one God, so how could there be other gods to worship? It really means you shall not worship other powers. You shall not have allegiance to other powers. There are other powers in the world. So this question of 
what Moses is when God himself says that he's going to be like an Elohim to Aaron. It's a sort of ambiguous thing. It doesn't really mean you'll be divine, but it means that you sort of have some sort of ultimate power in the relationship. And somehow the people maybe are tripping over that and taking that idea that Moses is an Elohim to Aaron and kind of running with it. Uh, a little bit close to the margins and getting themselves uh, on the wrong side of something that ends up being an act of idolatry, sort of confusing a power with someone that may have, uh, in a way, godlike status. I don't know if that's where you're going in that sense that Moses. Yeah. Went. So, so go ahead. That is where that is where I'm going. I think I think there are two elements that that I want us to pay attention to. One is it seems like the people have an inappropriate relationship with Moshe, inappropriate conception of Moshe, and possibly even uh, an inappropriate conception of God as well. But I'm going to leave that that latter one off for a second. I want to to continue to develop the, the, the Moshe piece. If you read with me 32 verse 4, where, where Aaron is actually molding the calf, right? He takes the jewelry from them. He creates a, a molten calf. By the way, just a little tangent. Masecha uh, means molten, but it also means... It also means a mask. Right. And, and maybe here there's a little bit of a hint as to this Egel, which is ostensibly being used as a connection device to God, is really a mask, right? It's really something to shield them from God to some extent. Mm -hmm. In that sense, a sort of passive-aggressive uh, kind of way of connecting, where I'm ostensibly seeking to connect through this divine being, but what I'm really doing is trying to shield myself from uh, the deleterious effects of, of, or my fear of connecting to the divine. So the calf is both a connecting device, an eagle wants to nurse, an eagle wants to connect with some sort of father or mother in heaven, but there's also that masecha, that masking, or keeping me me hidden uh, or safely away, blast shield from the divine at the same time. So the people are kind of conflicted about where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. So let me just finish this verse. By Yomru, they, they say once they make this molten mask-like calf, Ela Elohecha asher he'elucha me'erz Mitzrayim. Right? This is your God, Israel, that took you out of Egypt. And on the one hand, that took you out of Egypt, that, that phrase we had just a few verses above by Moshe, which you could argue is technically true. Right? Moses did lead them out of Egypt, um, although I would argue that it's that, that they were unfairly in a demigod sort of way attributing it to Moshe. Here, this is patently false. This calf did not take them out of Egypt. He didn't aid, abet, wasn't involved, wasn't there. Um, it's and yet fake they news. Are, it's fake news. They, they literally created some sort of demigod and, and argued that it took them out of Egypt. And I think, I think they had an agenda. They had a reason why they needed someone else to take them out of Egypt other than to lay that completely at God's feet. I think that you already alluded to it. You, you said that they're afraid. They're afraid somehow of, of that uh, raw connection to God himself. And, and when I read this Pasuk, it reminded me of some Sukkim in Bishalach, right? Bishalach happened, you know, a few weeks back. And I think by the time we get to Kitisa, we forget those earlier stories. But I think that reading Kitisa, this story of the golden calf without the context of Bishalach makes you really a lot more puzzled as to what was going on with the golden calf than you might need to be. I think there's actually a very clear story to tell. And I think that story has all to do with, as we said, the relationship with Moshe, whether that relationship was appropriate or inappropriate, as well as the relationship with God. 
and who God was to them and whether God is someone to be feared. And I'm going to argue that the people were terribly afraid of God and that that may not have been the right thing to do. And therefore they rushed into Moshe's arms. So uh, I'm going to push you for evidence here. What is it that you see in Beshalach that you think makes for a compelling antecedent to the story of the the Egal? Give me numbers. Give me data. Will do. Okay, so Rabbi Foreman, what I want to point you to is is really from, from Beshalach, all throughout Parsha Beshalach, you have a bunch of times where the people are in crisis and they call out. They reveal a lot about um, how they perceive things based on who they call out to and what it is they say. So I want you to come with me to chapter 14, verse 11. As the Egyptians are about to reach the Israelites at the sea, and they have the sea in front of them and nowhere to go, and they don't know the end of the story just like we do, right? We often think of the Israelites at the sea, perfectly faithful, ready for God to uh, to save them, but that's not exactly what happens. Instead, what do we get? Vayomru el Moshe, they turn on Moses and they say, what are there, not enough graves in Egypt? That you took us to the desert? Right, so the ultimate passive-aggressive line. What did you do to us to take us out of Egypt? This is exactly what we told you. We said, leave us alone. We're happy to work in Egypt. Because it's better for us to work in Egypt than to die in the desert. So to read these psukim, you get here for a second that they're not exactly relating to God. They somehow think that this plot of taking them out of Egypt is a Moshe plot. So I want right? yeah, to, yeah, they, I hear you, uh, and and I think you're you're right about this language. But I do want to challenge you just a little bit and push you because in the verse right before this, you're going to have to contend with a trend that seems to go in the opposite direction. Right? Read the verse just before this. So I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> So what happens is Paro faces them and they get very scared. And you have this very nice language, this very religious thing they do. Right? The people of Israel call out to God. But well, you, well, just to just understand the issue here, right? So it's not like they're ignoring God, right? They are calling out to God, even as they're complaining to Moses about Moses taking them out of Egypt. My point just is that it sounds like something kind of complex and almost muddled is going on here. It sounds like the, sure. the people... Uh, you know, are obviously in a relationship with God. They they don't believe that there was nothing divine about what happened. And nevertheless, they're laying the blame at what happened squarely at Moses's feet, which seems odd. Yes. Um, and by the way, I think that that tension is, is going to get to our takeaway. Because on, on the one hand, the people can't deny God. They just saw 10 plagues, fascinating miracles. So they have to relate to the fact that there is a divine being. But what do you do when you know there is a divine being and you can't contend with him because he's a god? Wouldn't it be great if you could have your cake and eat it too? If you had a god who was powerful and helped you and protected you when you didn't like where things were, there was a complaint department, right? That the god was sort of a man who you could fight with a little bit, right? I think that actually those two verses are, are perfect examples of the of, of Israel who um, are nishtahin and nishtaher, as as is said in Yiddish, right? They're neither here nor there. If I understand you correctly, what you're saying is, is that people do understand that there is some sort of partnership between God and Moses in taking them out. They get it that there's a divine being that supplies all the power and fireworks over here. Nevertheless, they understand correctly that Moses is in partnership with God, but what is, you know, not completely on the level 
in terms of what the people are doing is that when it becomes convenient, they realize they can't really challenge God, the Almighty, who's the maker of these miracles. But Moses is a person. His part of the partnership is the weak link. And so what they do is sort of, with with guile, pull this shtick, as it were, uh, of suggesting to Moses that he has greater responsibility than you might otherwise attribute them by saying, what the heck did he do? How do you take us out of Egypt? You should have just led us there, uh, where they are conveniently overemphasizing the Moses elements in this partnership. Is that kind of where you're going? Exactly. In order for them to complain, and they want to complain because Jews love to complain, they need to ascribe more power to Moshe than he deserves. And yet at the same time, they can't completely deny God's role either. And I think we're going to continue to see that more and more. So come with me to uh, chapter 15, verse 24, which is the next major complaint right after the splitting of the sea, after God proves himself. And by the way, just to make sure that we all know that they're not in denial of God, right? At the end of... of and they uh, sing this great song. Right. They sing this great song and, and, and we have this thing and it says, Vayat minu b'ashemu moshevdo. They believe in God and they believe in, in Moses, his, his Which, servant. by the way, is the, is the partnership right there. Right. So they're acknowledging that right. partnership. There's a God and there's a Moses, a servant. Right. So come with me to to 1524. And this is right after they, they run into they have no water or the water they have is, is very, very bitter. And so unlike last time where they screamed out to God and then complained to Moshe, here they just go directly to Moshe. The nation complains to Moshe saying, what are we going to drink? By the way, fascinating, if I can just interject, sorry about that for one second. There's a direct parallel and contrast with the last time around, right? Because the last time around, what the people did, as you pointed out, is that they screamed to God and then complained to Moshe. Here, the exact same words of scream to God are being evoked once more, except it's not the people who do it. It's Moses who does it. So the contrast is, oh, look at that, right? It's, it's, exactly, it's exactly the same thing. So what happens is the people now complain to Moses. They do not scream to God. They just complain to Moses, leaving it up to Moses to scream to God, which is what the very next thing that happens. Hashem, he right. screams to God. So again, it's almost as if Moses is is sort of being forced to take the bait. Right. It's like, no, our only address, our complaint department is you, Moses. We're not even doing any screaming to God, to which point it now becomes division of labor for Moses to take on this this new job of being the one to scream to God because he's got this complaints from the people. And and Moses is sort of being forced into being, you know, the weak link in this in this partnership. Mm hmm. Exactly. And, and and I think there's even more to learn from this particular episode, which is what happens is right after this, after uh, Moshe, um, he throws in a, 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 a stick or a tree into the water and it sweetens. Um, what happens is Moshe tells the people almost to comfort them, right? If you were to comfort the people, what would you say? So Moshe says, listen, don't worry. If you if only you, you listen to, to God's voice and you follow all of his commands, then he'll take care of you. Except that's not what he says. He says, if you listen to all of God's commands and if you follow in his ways, then all of the sickness, all of the sicknesses which I, God, placed on Egypt, I'm not going to put on you because I'm your doctor. I'm your healer. Which is a very weird and kind of creepy thing to reassure the people. The people don't have water. And, and they just want to hear that God is going to take care of them. So what does he say? Hey, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put all of the plagues that I, I put on the Egyptians upon you. Unless the people were actually afraid that God did not care about them. 
they were they saw God as a jealous, vengeful God who just destroyed Egypt and brought Egypt to its knees. In that book you wrote, Rabbi Foreman, right? One of the main agenda, one of the one of the main arguments you make about God's agenda is is for God to establish His own power, but not necessarily to establish His love over the people of Israel. And the miracles that God performs are all miracles of destruction. So maybe what God is doing here is saying, I know you're afraid of me. I know that you think that I don't care about you. And I want you to know that if you're in it with me, if you're in this relationship with me, I'm not going to do any of those things I did to Egypt. Ani Hashem Rofecha, I'm your healer. Okay, so let me summarize what I hear you saying and tell me if I got this right. What you're arguing is, is that at this point, finally, after sort of two failed communications between uh, the, the people, God and Moses, revol- revolving around complaints. Failure number one before the splitting of the sea. Failure number two after the splitting of the sea. God is noticing a trend, which is things are getting worse. The first time around, the people at least screamed to God and then complained to Moses. Now they're not even talking to God at all. They're just complaining to Moses, leaving it up to Moses to scream to God. At that point, God says, okay, folks, we got to talk about this. You're ignoring me. What's going on? Why are you ignoring me? And and God is, is is implicitly getting to the reason why. What you're suggesting is a possible rationale for why the people have been ignoring God. And the rationale is fear. And what you want to argue is that the nature of that fear is that the people cannot deny the signs and miracles and wonders in the Exodus, but they question the motivation of the divine for doing them, which is to say, what's in it for God? Right. One possibility is God loves us. He took us out. But there is another darker possibility, which is God has an agenda here. The agenda is to show the world that he is master, to be able to use the Egyptians as pawns. The people are worried that they are merely pawns in this battle between Egypt and God, and they are ancillary beneficiaries. But that's not really on God's mind, leading them to some kind of fear, which is like, look, do you just use us? And when it's no longer convenient, uh, do you even really care? At which point God sort of comes out of the clouds over here in Parsha Peshalach and says, hey, I just want to tell you something. If you're fearful that you guys will become the next Mitzrayim, that my anger will turn against you when you are not convenient, that's not the case. I'm actually looking to a long-term relationship with you, and I am not going to visit upon you all the terrible things that would happen in Egypt. I'm not that kind of God. Yep, that's that's what I'm arguing. Um, and and if you think it's it's speculative, or if you think that you know it's a little not enough evidence quite yet, then let me take you to one last destination, and that's in the very next parak when the people run out of food. And in sixteen two, you have this pasuk. Once more, they're facing a tra- uh, they're facing a struggle, and they complain against Moshe and Aaron this time, not against God. And Bnei Israel say to them, Would that we had died at the hands of, not at Pharaoh, but the hands of God in Egypt, almost as if God was going to have killed them. If they had stayed in Egypt, better that we had died by the hands of God in Egypt. Bishivtenu al-sir habasar, when at least we were sitting upon a pot of meat, we at least had food in our bellies. when we would have bread to uh, our satiation, to our satiety. otanu You guys, you Moshe and Aaron, unilaterally seemingly, took us out into this desert. 
to kill us with starvation. So here again, it seems seems obnoxious that they're that they're suggesting that Moshe and Aaron were the ones that took them out of Egypt, but again that they're they're suspecting that God would have killed them in the land of Egypt. A again, what I'm arguing here is that it seems like they looked at what happened in Egypt not as God saving them, but as God annihilating Egypt, and they were they would have died as collateral damage. Maybe Moshe Moshe was wily and was able to to spirit them away. But the, certainly that whole episode of Egypt had more to do with Egypt and God and God settling the score with Egypt than it had anything to do with them. And what happens is that Moshe then says to them, right? I'm, We're going to perform this, this uh, what's it called? God is going to perform this miracle for you. And he's going to bring food down from the heavens. And you'll see that God is the one who took you out of Egypt, not us. Right? And, and in the morning when that bread falls, you'll see the glory of God. Um, and in his having heard your complaints upon him. Um, and, and us, who are we that you complain to us? Right? So God is going to, he's basically overhearing your complaints about him to us. And he's going to respond to you. And you guys, you really shouldn't be talking to us. We're we're not the complaint department. God is the one who you should be complaining to. Okay, I hear you. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me. My only concern is around miutain mutenu biyada shemberetz mitzrayim. Feels to me a little bit mm -hmm. ambiguous as to what that means. If I'm not mistaken, you're offering the interpretation that we might have died as collateral damage because God would have been um, uh, indifferent to our fates. I guess that's mm -hmm. possible. Another possibility is they're just talking about natural death, right? The way anybody dies at the hands of God after living a ripe old age, we would have at least been able to live out our lives and die like normal human beings, at least having mm -hmm. bread in our stomachs rather than die out here like abnormal human beings of starvation. So I, I hear you. I'm, I'm putting together both the Kola Machala and the Biyat Hashem to argue that what's happening here is that the people have a a demigod relationship with Moshe, and they have a fear of God. I, I think the the thrust of your theory stands, even if the people are worried about natural death at the hands of God. It seems to me that the progression is mm -hmm. that this is a third complaint, right? In complaint number one, they acknowledge God and scream to him and just talk to Moses. In complaint number two, they don't even acknowledge God. They complain to Moses and they leave it to Moses to scream to God. In complaint number three, they're going even a little bit further by arguing that Moses in his actions may have been acting, here's another possibility, at cross purposes with God. That God might have preferred them to stay in Egypt while there were all these signs and wonders as he was getting rid of all the Egyptians. And Moses on his own kind mm -hmm. of decides to take them out and, um, you know, what are you doing, Moses? You're, you're killing us. If we had just mm -hmm. stayed back with God's plan, you know, God's plan might have had us hanging back and just watching the fireworks show mm -hmm. from Egypt while we remain slaves is another possible reading. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do was, was I think that the, the reading of the of Bishalach really informs the reading of, of, uh, of Kitisa here in this episode of the Egel. So after you know, the, the things that have, have transpired in between Bishalach and, and Kitisa and the Chet Egel is the giving of the Torah, where God reveals himself to the people 
And he says in the very first line of his speech, Anochi Hashem No, it's me. I am your God. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. So in other words, what you seem to be saying is that the reason why God needs to introduce himself this way in the Ten Commandments is because it's like, here it is, God speaking from the top of the mountain directly to the people of Israel, no Moses intermediary, no chance for miscommunication. And God says, let me clear up this confusion once and for all. I am responsible. I am the one who took you out of Egypt, which makes it all the more ironic what's happening at the bottom of the mountain (laughs) as the people are dancing around a calf and essentially calling that very thing into question. Even as God is attempting to make it as clear as day in the Ten Commandments that I am the one who took you out of Egypt, the people are still sort of uh, using this back channel that Moses is this man who took us out of Egypt. We need a God to perform that function, and they're backsliding. And so having said all of this, what do you think their motivation was for building a calf? What do you think, um, you know, and I know you don't like to, to speak in this language, but I'll, I'll put it in my language and you can recontextualize it if you want. Like, what, what would you say is sort of the takeaway? Uh, where do you see yourself or where do, where do we see ourselves in where Bnei Israel went wrong? So, I mean, if you think about it this way, if their underlying motivation as you are reading this is to argue that the people are looking to overemphasize the Moses part of the partnership because it's convenient for them, because it allows them a mortal human being to whom they can complain to, is that purpose served by a calf to replace Moses? The way that people may have been viewing Moses is on the one hand a demigod, but on the other hand a human, sort of this cross between the two. And as a human, he is a human being representing the people in relationship with God. And as a demigod, mm-hmm. he is sort of a god-like figure representing God to the people. He has both of those qualities. So now the people are trying to replace that Moses with this demi kind of god, which this thing that they create, but the advantage they have is that they've created it. They've created this thing, and therefore it's a representative of them too. And so it, there's something sneaky going on here in this idolatry, which is when you make your own idol, when you make your own God, who's in charge of who? So you can pretend that the God is in charge of you and that this this thing, this divine God, is higher up on the totem pole of power than you. But the reality is it's just a product of your own hands and you are the one pulling the strings and you are the puppeteer. And in in that sense, you have the ultimate being that you can control. So if the people on the one hand are, um, if the the nature of their sin, so to speak, throughout Parshat B'Shalach is, as you suggest, that they are seeking to lean on a Moses that they think they can control by complaining to him, they have that in spades with a calf that is nothing but the products of their own hands. It's uh, They are completely in charge of that end of the relationship even though, ironically, the calf has no power whatsoever. Yeah, I think this is something we we should pay attention to as we continue to read these other partiot, but it makes me wonder whether there's an issue we have in Judaism with intermediaries. Um, you know, the Torah ends with a really great statement about Moshe, how there never again arose a, a Navi um, as amazing as Moshe, who you know, saw God face to face or spoke to God face to face. And I wonder if that's, you know, both a praise of Moshe, but also there's a reason why we don't get another Moshe. 
maybe to some extent, uh, we are called into a more direct uh, relationship with God and something we're afraid of, something we, we tend to avoid. Uh, it's an interesting possibility. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, I think back to my Rosh Shiva Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, who uh, once, uh, you know, told us as Talmidim uh, something kind of strange about the role of a Rebbe. You know, if you're in yeshiva, you think you've got your Rebbe. What's your role of your uh, of your Rebbe? And when a sort of an immature view of Rebbe role, at least as a ninth grader or a tenth grader, you know, you're looking up to this demigod and you're looking up as a Mr. Intermediary between you and God. And he's just going to fix all the problems and I can complain to him and he's a human being and uh, and somehow he's going to make it all better. Um, and Rabbi Weinberg's perspective was that the, the Rebbe doesn't really have that intermediary role. Um, the Rebbe's role is actually to help you stand up as an independent human being in your relationship with God. His role, according to Rabbi Weinberg, is to test your objectivity. That if you can talk things out with a mentor, with a Rebbe, and that Rebbe can stand in front of you and say, what you're saying, uh, you know, makes sense, or I hear, uh, you know, a certain bias in your words, or I don't think you're being honest with yourself. If there is an honest, wise human being who can, um, who can vet your issues and, and give you the confidence, really, of your own convictions, or call you out if you're lying to yourself, um, and the Rebbe, in his view, was actually someone that, that helps us become more independent in our relationship with God than helps us shirk our responsibilities in that relationship. At least that was his his take on it, and it's certainly something which has resonated with me over time. That's a really incredible take, like a leader that fosters more independence and more responsibility uh, for their for their flock. Well, Rabbi Foreman, this is a good as time good a time as any to be grateful for your mentorship. <laughs> Uh, and to, uh, to say it is fun learning these partial with you. I hope, uh, I hope we were able to impart something of value to, to others. Thanks everyone for more on the golden calf. Rabbi Foreman has recorded an epic, epic series. Um, what we did today was small potatoes compared to the incredible treatment Rabbi Foreman gave it. So make sure to go to alephbeta.org and check out the incredible audio series that we have there. You can listen on the Aleph Beta app while you're driving in your car, while you're peeling your potatoes. It is incredible, breathtaking. You, you don't want to miss it. And please make sure to share this podcast with others, to rate it in the iTunes store if you haven't already. That actually really helps us a ton. Uh, if you want to support our work, you can subscribe at alephbeta.org. And most importantly, and most of all, please write to us at info at alephbeta.org and share your comments. Tell us how you enjoyed it. Tell us how you hated it. Uh, we really want to know. Thanks.